Good morning. My name is Nathaniel Simmons, and uh, my wife, Cannon, is here with me in the front. Before I get started, I just wanted to take a couple, give a couple words of thanks to you guys. Uh, The first is just for you letting me come and speak to you today. I've been able to spend the last, really about three weeks, just meditating and percolating on Psalm 51 and thinking about what does this psalm have to do with my life? What a blessing it has been for me to have the opportunity to study it, and I hope that you'll find it a blessing as we read it together and study it together today. Uh, The second reason I wanted to thank you guys is because of how well you've treated Justin and Chelsea. Uh, Justin has been a great friend of mine. He moved, I think we met probably four or five years ago when he started seminary. Uh, I was his landlord, but I was also his roommate, and so we got to hang out a lot, spend a lot of time uh, debating theology and the Bible, and, and just also being friends, just hanging out and being great friends. So they, Justin and Chelsea mean a whole lot to me, and I've been able to communicate with them several times since they've been here, and every time I talk to them, they have another story about how you guys have blessed them since they've been here. Um, one of my favorite preachers, a, a pastor I read, is John Piper, and he describes the job of being a pastor as like a marriage. He says he's married, obviously, first to his wife, But the church is like a wife to him in that he loves the church. He loves the people of the church. He sacrifices his time and his money and his energy and his sleep for the people of the church. He says his life is so tied up with the church that he serves that it is like a marriage to him. We all know that if you have a happy marriage, it's just a pleasure to serve your wife. When your marriage is hard, you have to serve your wife anyway. But it's not as easy. And so far, Justin and Chelsea have explained that this has been a very happy marriage. My prayer for them is that, and for you is that if God will give them the gift of serving here for 30 or 40 more years, that they'll have been able to have loved you guys. <laughs> I pray that they'll be able to love you guys well, that they'll love your children, and they'll love your grandchildren. And then at the end of this time, that they'll say this has been a very happy marriage. So before I start, I want to pray. I want to pray for the health of this church and for Justin and Chelsea. And I also want to pray for us as we turn to Psalm 51 together. So let me pray. Dear Lord, thank you so much for the opportunity to be here in your house with your body and to study your word. Help us to submit ourselves to your word and uh, to love you more for it. We also thank you for Rockfish Valley Baptist Church. And thank you for Justin and Chelsea. And we pray that you'll bless uh, this family and you'll bless this marriage, and that everyone involved here will say that they know you and love you more because of this union. In your name I pray, amen. All right, if you'll turn with me, we'll start right away in Psalm chapter 51. Or at least Psalm 51. It's not a narrative like it has chapters. There's, 50, there's 150 Psalms. This is the 51st. I wanted to, before we start reading it together, I want to give you just a couple background type of information, things to help. Uh, this is... Psalm 51 is one of seven penitential psalms. You might not be familiar with the word penitential. Penitential just means it has to do with repentance. So this psalm has to do with repentance. It's possible that you're not familiar with the term repentance because the only time we really use the word repentance is at church. Like We rarely ever say, you need to repent to your mom and dad. It's not part of our normal vocabulary. If you're not familiar with repentance, it's basically like an apology. The only thing is an apology usually has to do with only the things we say, right? But repentance has to do with the things you say, and it also has to do with the things you do. 
So the, the repentance that we're going to look at today has to do with what are we going to say to God and what are we going to do? I, want to be, I don't want to go too far into this because we're going to look at Psalm 51. I want to let Psalm 51 speak, to its, speak for itself. But remember, we're going to be thinking of what does this teach us about repentance and how does this tell us what to say to God and what to do? Um, another thing is because it's about repentance, when you read Psalm 51, you kind of get a sense that you're reading somebody's personal mail. It's like I've opened up somebody's uh, diary and I'm reading through it. And in a real sense, that's what we're doing. We're reading David's personal letter that he's written to God. But I think it's important for us to know that the very fact that this is in the Bible means it's not just a personal letter. This isn't just something between David and God. God has inspired David. He's guided David's pen to write this for you and for me so that we'll know how to repent so that we'll know how to follow David's example and have our relationship with God restored. I want to tell you also before we start what the main idea of this text is. The main, if we can walk away from this and you have one single sentence in your head that sums up the whole psalm, I would like for you to know that this this psalm was written to show us that true repentance, that's the kind of repentance that God is looking for, is made up of three steps. The first step is confession of our sins. The second step is a plea for God's mercy, for God's intervention. And the third step is to respond in worship. The psalm itself is made up of four parts. The first part is just an introduction. We'll look at the superscript and then verses 1 and 2. It's going to introduce it. And then we're going to have three more parts. The first part is going to tell us about confession, what it looks like, and how we can confess our sin. The second part, well, the third part, is going to be verses 7 through 12, and it's going to tell us what it looks like to beg God for mercy. What does a plea for mercy look like? And the last part, verses 13 through the end of the chapter, are going to tell us what does it look like to respond to God's mercy in worship and in praise. So hopefully that gives us a good, uh, a good idea of what's coming. Usually I like to read the whole psalm before we get started, but there's so much in this psalm that we don't have a ton of time, and it takes about eight minutes for me just to read it just straight through so what we're going to do is we're just going to break it out chunk by chunk so if you want to look with me we'll start at the very beginning and you'll notice that the very beginning of psalm 51 starts even before verse one before verse one you'll have a little bitty usually in your bibles it'll be a small script that we call it a superscript in the psalms Most of the psalms, not all of them, will have a little thing that tells you a little bit about the psalm. Typically, it tells you um, how it's to be played musically because the psalms are to be sung in the Jewish worship experience. Sometimes it tells you who wrote the psalm. But our psalm actually has a lot more than that. If you look at it, the Psalm 51 superscript says, To the choir master, the psalm of David, when Nathan the prophet came to him after he had gone into Bathsheba. So this is one of the few psalms, there's a handful more, but this is one of the few psalms that says in order to understand this psalm, you need to know the context in which it was first written. In order to know this psalm, you need to know not only who wrote it, but why he wrote it. Right? So what we're going to do is we're going to actually turn back. You can hold your finger in Psalm 51, but we're going to turn back to 2 Samuel chapter 11, and we're going to see what was this whole story. Why did Nathan come to David? Why did he have to rebuke him? And we'll read 2 Samuel Chapter 11, and I'm going to read the first five verses, and then we'll just kind of summarize the rest of it uh, for time's sake. First five verses read like this. In the spring of the year, 
the time when the kings go forth to battle, David sent Joab and his servants with them and all of Israel, and they ravaged the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah. But David remained at Jerusalem. It happened late one afternoon when David arose from his couch and he was walking upon the roof of the king's house that he saw from the roof a woman bathing. And the woman was very beautiful. David sent and inquired about the woman, and, the one, and one said, Is this not Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? So David sent messengers, and he took her, and she came to him, and he lay with her. Now she was purifying herself because of her uncleanliness. And then she returned to her house, and the woman conceived, and she sent and told David, I am with child. The first five verses, just to recap show that David is not doing right. Several things we see that David was supposed to be at battle because he's the king, but he's decided not to go where he's supposed to be. We see that David sees a woman, and rather than turning away, David lusts and encourages that lust within himself, and he commits adultery with this woman. We see that David, this woman was doing what was right. She was purifying herself from her uncleanness, but David used his power and his position as king to force her to have sex with him. Therefore, we would say that David has, in addition to committing adultery, David is guilty of rape. David is a liar. David is lazy. He's shirking his responsibility. He's lusted. He's committed adultery, and he has raped a woman in just the first five verses. As we keep on reading, we're going to see David just gets worse and worse. What David realizes in verse 5, is at first he thought, all of this I can do because my army's gone. I'm here at the castle. I'm by myself. Nobody's going to know. And I can have this woman come to me and nobody will have to know. But what we find out in verse 5 is that she comes and says, David, I'm pregnant. And so now he knows everything's about to be found out. This girl's pregnant and is going to show in nine months her belly will be large and everybody will know Uriah was off at war. And everybody's going to know. So he comes up with a plan. How can I cover my tracks? And here's what he decides to do. He talks to Uriah and says, Uriah, we actually talked to Joab to talk to Uriah and said, send Uriah back. And we're going to get Uriah to go spend the night at home again. And that way, when she starts showing, everybody and Uriah himself will think, that's my child. But what David didn't count on is that Uriah is more just than David is. Uriah said, a soldier doesn't come home from war just so that he can be the only one to enjoy a night home with his wife. And so Uriah would not come home from the battle. And David tried a lot of things to get Uriah to come, but David, uh, Uriah wouldn't. So now David realizes, I'm caught, and this man is being more just than I was. He won't leave the war. And so he has to come up with a new strategy. And in verse 12... You see that David decides that it's time to have Uriah killed. He calls Joab, not on the phone, but he somehow sends a message to Joab. And he says, Joab, we need to put Uriah on the front line. We need when he goes out to battle to be sure that Uriah is not going to live. Joab wasn't a huge fan of this idea because it was tactically a bad idea. They did it anyway. He put Uriah on the front line. Uriah dies. Israel loses tons of people in the battle, but still win the battle and win the war. And everything comes home, and it seems like everything's washed away. Nobody knows. David takes Bathsheba and marries her, so she becomes his wife. And by the time that anyone realizes that she is expecting a child, everyone knows that she's married to David. So it seems like his sin has been completely gotten away with. But in the very last verse of chapter 11, you read what's probably the biggest understatement of the entire Bible. 
The chapter ends with, in 2 Samuel eleven twenty seven, this sentence. The thing that David had done displeased the Lord. Can you think of a bigger understatement than what David did? David was a lying, adulterous, raping murderer. And that displeased the Lord. So then, in chapter 12, really another amazing thing happens. God sends Nathan, his prophet, after the whole event's over, after the baby's been born, to confront David. And so Nathan comes up and he tells David a story. So there's a story I want to tell you about two farmers. The first farmer was wealthy and he had tons and tons of sheep. Tons of, he had livestock galore. He had all the money he needed. Tons of sheep. There was a second farmer and all he had was one sheep. But man, he loved that sheep. He treated that sheep like it was a member of his own family. He said, but then the rich farmer had a visitor that was coming. And this visitor, he knew he wanted to give him lamb chops. So he's like, I want to feed this guy something nice. But he wasn't willing to feed him of his own flock. And so what he did is he went and he stole the sheep from the poor farmer. And he served that as dinner for his rich guest. Nathan tells this to David. And all of a sudden, David's sense of justice is back. And David says, what? This is ridiculous. And listen to what David says. David says, as the Lord lives, the man who did this deserves to die. And he shall restore the lamb fourfold because he did this thing because he had no pity. And Nathan then looks at him and says, David, you're the man. You're the one who's done this. And a light bulb goes off in David's head. All of a sudden, he realizes, I'm the man. I'm the one that deserves to die. I'm the one that has to repay what I've done fourfold. I am the one that is guilty in this situation. And after that amazing thing, we read what I think is another one of the most amazing verses in the Bible. Read with me in verse 13. David says to Nathan, uh, yeah, David says to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. But Nathan says to David, the Lord has also put away your sin. You shall not die. Is that amazing? We've just looked at David and said that he's a murderous, adulterous, he's raped a woman, he's lied, he's been lazy and shirked his duties. David is not deserving to live. And God says, but I'm going to put away your sin and you will not die. And it strikes against our sense of justice. How can a just God put away the sin of David? We know some of the answer right now. We're going to look at it in Psalm 51, but we see the answer unfold even more in the New Testament. Let me read to you. Uh, you don't have to turn there. I'll just read it to you from Romans chapter 3. Paul says, There is no distinction because everyone has sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. They're justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that's in Jesus Christ, whom God put forward as an expiation by His blood to be received by faith. And this was to show God's righteousness. Because in divine forbearance, he passed over certain sins. And this was to prove at the present time that he was righteous and that he's the one who justifies him who has faith in Jesus Christ. So you see, what he says, in former times, in David's time, God was able to pass over David's sin because he knew that one day he was going to require this death penalty, but not of David. He would require this death penalty of his own son. He would send his own son to die in David's place so that he could say to David, David, I have passed over your sins and you do not have to die. This is the most amazing news in the entire Bible. 
that there is a way for you and I who deserve death to have our sins passed over. I wanted to read the context to you because it's super important for us to read this knowing that we are like David. Sometimes we'll read this passage and we'll think, David, he's out there. He's the worst of the sinners, and that's not me. But this psalm is saying, if you want to understand Psalm 51, you have to think, I'm David. I am the man. I am the one who had no pity. I am the one who deserves death and separation from God. And if you come to that realization, if you think you're sitting in this room right now and you think, I'm David, then what we're about to read will be the most beautiful thing you'll ever read. It will sound like a presidential pardon from someone on death row. It will tell you how God can pass over your sins and how you do not have to die. What we're going to do is we're going to start by looking at verse 1 and 2. We've already looked at the context. I want to show you the rest of the introduction before we jump into our three-step process. The rest of the introduction in verses 1 through 2 say, Have mercy on me, O God, according to thy steadfast love. According to thy abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sins. As I said, this is still introduction. Some of what David says here is going to be repeated. And I'm going to hold that for when we get to those sections and when he fleshes them out more. But there's one thing that we need to see before we move on. And that is the foundation that David is resting on when he comes to God for forgiveness. David comes to God for forgiveness because he believes that God has steadfast love and abounding mercy. Everything that's going to flow from here, all of what David's three steps are, his confession, his begging God for mercy, and his response are going to be because he believes something very important about God. He believes that God is steadfast in love and abounding in mercy. Ultimately, David's going to be forgiven not because he's not that bad, He's going to be forgiven because God is that good. This is the whole foundation that everything else will rest on. So let's look. What is David's first step? Let's read it together. I'll read from starting in verse 3 and we'll read through verse 6. David says, For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against thee and thee only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. So that thou art justified in thy sentence and blameless in thy judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, thou desirest truth in the inward being. Therefore, teach me wisdom in my secret heart. I'm going to try to point out three things from these verses. Three things that will characterize what confession looks like. And the first one is that David recognizes the weight of his sin. See how David says, behold, my sin is ever before me. He's convinced that he's guilty and that the weight of his sin is always before him. I want to give you an example of a a type of apology that I think is common today, but shows that we don't have the weight of sin ever before us. There was a guy, I think this was one or two years ago, that he basically he was a... uh, School, he was on the school board in Arkansas, and there was a child in his district who was a homosexual boy who committed suicide because he had been bullied in class. And this guy in the school board became very angry at the way the media was treating it, and he started to say some things on Facebook that were very mean-spirited. And he said that he wished that 
every homosexual would commit suicide. Well, obviously, the media is going crazy. They say, you don't, no one on the school board should ever say anyone should commit suicide. That's horrible. And so the media starts getting him involved and wants to talk to him, and he realizes that he's been caught saying some things that he thought might be private, and now that the world knows, it's embarrassing. So what he says, he gets on Anderson Cooper, and he says, Anderson, the main thing I want you to know is that though I said these things, that's not me. He says, if you knew the real me, you would know that I don't really feel these things. It was just a moment of poor judgment. But the real me is better. The real me loves kids. The real me doesn't want anybody to commit suicide. What you saw wasn't the real me. What I want to point out is that David, his apology, his confession would never say that that's not the real me. In fact, what David says is that what you've seen is only the tip of it. My, I am sinful from the inward being, that I am corrupted in my soul. I'm not better than I seem. I'm worse than I seem. David's apology is that he realizes the weight of what he's done, and it has corrupted his entire soul. There's another thing that David does that's, I think, also astounding, is that David accepts the penalty that he's earned. David says in verse uh, 4, he said, so that you are justified in your sentence and blameless in your judgment. David says, I deserve death, and that penalty is just. I know that I spent, how many years are you a teenager? Seven years as a teenager, and I have been punished many times as a teenager. Grounded, my parents would say, you're grounded for a week, or you're grounded for a month, or whatever I was grounded. I never would say to them, that's fair. Instead, I would always say something like, okay, I know I did something bad, but a month? Don't be ridiculous. That's too long. I don't deserve that much. That's not the kind of apology David's modeling. David says, I have sinned and I deserve death. There's no making his sin less. There's no making his penalty less. David recognizes his sin is weighty and that the judgment he deserves is just. He deserves death. There's one last thing I want to show you before we move on from this. And it's not something that's in the text. It's something that's not in the text. Do you notice that David never says, I'm sorry, but? David never says, I'm sorry, but if she hadn't been on the rooftop, then I never would have done it in the first place. David never tries to say, I'm not as guilty as I seem because someone else made me do it or at least encourage me, he never tries to mitigate or lessen his guilt by saying, I'm sorry, but. This is a hard thing to do. I've been telling people I've been married for about two years, and I've had plenty of opportunities to apologize, and it is hard not to say, I'm sorry, but. But every time I do say I'm sorry, but what I'm essentially saying is, yeah, I might, maybe it's true, I shouldn't have said what I said, but I was justified because you did something even worse. That's a horrible apology. David doesn't do that. There is no I'm sorry, but David says I am guilty from the moment I was conceived. Sin was reigning in my body and I deserve the penalty. No exceptions, no exclusions. I deserve death. I want to be really clear about one thing, and that is that though confession is the first part of repentance... Confession in and of itself 
is not enough to bring forgiveness. This is one of the things that completely separates our understanding of confession from that of the Catholics. Uh, You might be familiar with Martin Luther. He's considered to be the father of the Reformation. He was a monk in the 1500s. And Martin Luther was convinced that he was a sinner. And the way David was convinced that he's a sinner, Martin Luther was convinced. And under the Catholic doctrine, he was taught that if he would go to confession, that every time that he would confess his sin, that sin would be wiped away. So Martin Luther would go to confession every single day. Often he would go several times a day. Several times, Martin Luther would sit in the confession booth for six hours at a time, confessing his sins. I'm reading a biography by him right now, or not by him, about him. Um, I'd like to read to you a little section of what they say about Martin Luther. And he, Martin Luther, was frightened when after six hours of confessing, he could still go out and think of something else which had eluded his most conscientious scrutiny. Still more disconcerting was the discovery that some of man's misdemeanors are not even recognized, let alone remembered. Martin Luther was realizing, I'm not able to keep up in confession. Because every time I leave this confession booth, there's something else I've done or something I've forgotten before I ever came in. And he was despairing of his ability to confess well enough to earn forgiveness. That ultimately, the despair of his inability to confess is what led to him finally finding forgiveness. Listen to this. It says, There is, according to Luther, something much more drastically wrong with man than any particular list of offenses which can be enumerated, confessed, and forgiven. The very nature of man is corrupt. The penitential system fails because it is directed to particular lapses. Luther had come to perceive that the entire man is in need of forgiveness. That he couldn't confess good enough to earn God's salvation. There was too many things wrong in his heart and in his soul to even put them on a paper and say, I've got it all down now. He was so corrupt that his very heart needed changing. Luther's only hope wasn't to do something, but to beg that God would do something. So that's our next point. We're going to read 7 to 12, and we're going to see what Luther did and what David did, and we're going to find out what it is that brings forgiveness. And it's purely that we beg for it. Let's look at verse 7 through 12. Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Fill me with joy and gladness. Let the bones which thou hast broken rejoice. Hide thy face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and put a new and right spirit within me. Cast me not away from thy presence and take not thy Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of thy salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. Notice in these verses that David is not doing something to bring forgiveness, but he's begging God to do something. Each time he's begging God, cleanse me, wash me, pure, give me, restore the joy. Every time, God is the subject of these passages, and he's the one doing the action. David's only hope is that God can make him right. Uh, there's tons of things that he asked God to do, but... You can break these down into two major categories. One of the professors at our school, Danny Aiken, he says the two major categories are to ask God to clear you and ask God to restore you. And so what I'm going to do, instead of going through each 
verse, I'm just going to talk about the major categories. What does it mean to ask God to clear you? And then what does it mean to ask God to restore you? To ask God to clear you is to recognize what David recognized, and it's to say, I am guilty. There is, on my ledger sheet, there is a guilty verdict right there. And it's simply saying, God, will you clear that? Will you strike it from my record? Will you make it so that the guilt is no longer hanging on my account? That's what we mean when we ask to be washed, when we ask to be cleansed, when we ask to be cleared of our guilt. We're asking God to take the guilt off of our record. The other thing David does, and this is astounding, is he asks God to refresh him, to restore his joy. This is more than simply having your guilt taken away. David wants to have a right relationship with God. Another thing I've learned from being married is that often when I do something wrong, when I first apologize, my wife is quick to forgive me. She'll say, I I forgive you, I understand. But after that, there's this period of kind of awkwardness. I'm like, I know I just did something strange. And so we sit there, and there's a, there's a kind of coldness that can kind of settle in. And she's not mad. She's not doing anything mean. And I'm not mad. I'm not doing anything mean. But there's still clearly a break in the relationship. David sees the same thing as happened with God. And what he's saying is, God, I can't fix this break. There is nothing I can do to earn your affection. What I simply ask is that you fix our relationship. I've only brought pain. I've only brought sin. I've only brought heartache. And I'm asking you to wipe away the bad I've brought and then to give the good. I'm asking you to restore the joy, to make me happy again, to restore the joy of my salvation. And so when we confess, we say, yes, God, I recognize that I'm a sinner. I recognize that I deserve death. But then we also beg God and we say, God, I recognize that you can wipe away my sin. And not only can you wipe away my death, but you can bring life. You can make me have joy inside again that I know you. And that's the first two steps of repentance. That's those two steps mark everything that David has done so far. And all that he has done is to say, I can't do anything and to beg God to do everything. David's only contribution is to admit that he makes no contribution and to ask God to contribute everything. It's amazing. It's a really amazing interchange. But after that, David does do something. And that's what we're going to see in verses 13 through the end of the chapter. What David's going to do is he's going to respond to God's grace. He's not going to earn it, but he's going to respond to God's grace in worship and in praise. There's two major sections we're going to look at. The first is 13 through 15, and the rest is 16 through 19. I'm going to break those up for time instead of reading them all together. So let's read 13 through 15 and see what David's response is. He says, Then I will teach transgressors thy ways, and sinners will return to thee. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, thou God of my salvation. And my tongue will sing aloud of thy deliverance, O Lord. Open my lips, and my mouth shall show forth thy praise. So the first thing David says is, God, if you forgive me, well, because you've forgiven me, I'm going to go tell people that I know where forgiveness is. This would be like, God, if you, it's like going to a doctor and the doctor finds that you have cancer and he treats you and he cures you of your cancer and then you meet someone else with cancer. You're going to say, go to my doctor. He healed me. He made me better. You wouldn't keep that to yourself. You're going to tell people, I know where the cure is. And that's what David says in his first point, is I'm going to tell people where the cure is. I'm going to tell people how their sins can be forgiven. I'm going to tell them how their happiness and joy can be restored. 
The second thing he does is says, I'm not just going to tell people that need it. I'm just going to talk about it all the time. Listen to what he says in verses 14 and 15 one more time. He says, deliver me from, from blood guiltiness, O God, thou God of my salvation, and my tongue will sing aloud thy deliverance. O Lord, open thou my lips. The idea is, David, uh, David is saying, if you restore my joy, my joy is just going to overflow and bubble out into praising you. I'm going to sing songs. If I'm, I'm so happy about what God's done, I'm naturally going to tell people about it. I'm naturally going to sing songs about it. I'm naturally going to be thinking about it and reading books about it. And I'm going to be so happy that my life is going to bubble over into praise. I want to share with you a quote. Uh, before I do that, let me say this sentence again. That the reason that our relationship... Let me start that sentence over. It's because our relationship with God isn't fixed. It's not right until we enjoy Him. And our enjoyment of God will not be complete until we praise Him. Let me say that one more time. The reason we praise God is because our relationship with God isn't fixed. And it's not right until we enjoy Him or until we praise Him. And praise is the end of enjoyment. Let me read a quote by C.S. Lewis. I think it will make it more clear. C.S. Lewis says, But the most obvious fact about praise, whether of God or anything, has strangely escaped me. He said, I thought of it in terms of compliment or approval or the giving of honor. He said, but I never noticed that all enjoyment spontaneously overflows into praise. He said, the world rings with praise. Lovers praising their mistresses. Readers praising their favorite poet. Walkers praising the countryside. Players praising their favorite game. And then he starts to speculate, why is this? And he says, I think that we delight to praise what we enjoy because praise not merely expresses but it completes the enjoyment. It's the appointed consummation of enjoyment is to praise. So the end of our repentance, the last stage of repentance, is going to be to enjoy God. And the only way you enjoy God is to praise God. It's to say, I love God. And you tell people and you sing songs about it and you read books about God because you love God. That's the third step of repentance. The first step was confessing. The second step was begging God for mercy. And the third step is being so excited about the mercy God gives you that it bubbles over into praise. We're not quite done with the psalm. There's one last section that's still discussing what is this whole praise thing about. And what David's going to do is explain something that is going to be really hard, especially if you were the original audience. If you were a Jewish person listening to this message, you would have thought, wait a second. David's never done it. He's never made a sacrifice. He's never done anything. Right? Jewish people will think, if I've sinned, don't I need to kill a calf or a goat or a lamb and sacrifice that at the temple? Don't I have to do something to get forgiveness? And so David's going to explain, what's this whole relationship between sacrifice and true repentance? What's the whole relationship between doing something and getting forgiveness? So let's read in verse 16 through the end real quick. David says, For thou hast no delight in sacrifice. Were I to give a burnt offering, thou would not be pleased. The sacrifice acceptable to God is a broken spirit. A broken and contrite heart, O God, thou wilt not despise. Do good unto Zion in thy good pleasure. Rebuild the walls of Jerusalem. Then thou wilt delight in right sacrifices. In burnt offerings and in whole burnt offerings. Then bulls will be offered on thy altar. So David first says, God doesn't want sacrifices. And then he later says, but then God's going to want sacrifices. 
So what I want to first say is David isn't schizophrenic here. He's not confused. But what he does recognize is that if you make the right sacrifice at the right time in the right way, then God's happy. But if you make it at the wrong time in the wrong way, then it's not, it doesn't work. It's not any good. So what is the right time in the right way? How do we understand this? What would make a sacrifice acceptable to God? And what would make it not acceptable? And the good thing is that this is going to be really easy for us to understand because what God wants is the same thing all of us want. And especially any married man knows this because it's the same thing your wife wants when you give her apology flowers. If you've done something to offend your wife and you know that you're in the doghouse, you say, I'm going to go and I'm going to get some flowers. I'm going to give them to her. And there's two ways you can approach it. You could say to your wife, I know that I did something really wrong, but I bought you these flowers. And so now you have to forgive me. I know that I did something really bad, but I bought you these flowers, so it's paid for. It's done. All of a sudden, these flowers are ugly. I hate these flowers. You can't buy my forgiveness. You can't get out of this because you had an extra $20 to spare at Harris Teeter. That doesn't take care of it. It's offensive that I would try to give my wife flowers to buy her forgiveness. The flowers don't help me. The flowers have made it way, way worse. Now I have to buy flowers for something else. Because I've tried to bribe my wife's forgiveness. God's the same way. He won't accept those. On the other hand, if I give my wife flowers and I say, I know that I've done wrong. But I just want you to know that I love you so much. And that you have forgiven me and I'm thankful for that. And I give these flowers not to buy your forgiveness, but as a token of my love for you and my appreciation for you. Then the flowers are beautiful. Because it's not the flowers that had anything to do with it. It's the time they were given, the way they were given, that make it the difference. The whole difference is how I give them. And the sacrifices are the same way. If you give a sacrifice to God because you think it obligates God or because you think it will secure your forgiveness, then that is a distasteful, offensive sacrifice. But if you give a sacrifice to God because you're thankful for what he's done, then it's beautiful. It's pleasing. We might think, well, we don't do sacrifices. So what's, what's the point? Why are you talking about this? I'm not a Jew anymore. I don't go to the temple. I don't have any cattle that I'm killing to take care of my sin. But it, it's important to realize that we still do sacrifice. It looks different, but we still do it. In the Catholic Church, one of the reasons we left is because, one of the reasons the Protestants separated, is because we felt there's a huge difference in how we understand sacrifices. The Catholic Church does something called uh, indulgences. I'm not sure you might have heard about them recently because the Pope offered indulgences recently. But historically, the indulgences are simply something that you can do or something that you can buy in order to guarantee that your sins will be covered. Right? When Martin Luther left the, Protestant, uh, left the Catholic Church, there was a man that's really famous named John Tetzel. And he was kind of a traveling fundraiser for the Catholic Church who had a famous line that said, When a coin in the coffer rings... A soul from purgatory springs. And so he said, you can get out of purgatory. You can get out of your punishment and your guilt if you just give some money. And the more money you give, the less time you have to spend there, and you'll be free. And so they started raising tons of money. Right? And Luther said, you can't buy God's forgiveness. There's no amount of money that can pay for your sin. The penalty is too great, and it's an offense that you would even try to offer your chump change as a to somehow placate God's eternal and infinite wrath for your sin. It's an offense. 
But I'm not Catholic either, right? So I don't do, do indulgences. So am I free from that? In our small group uh, in Raleigh, we were talking the other day about something we do that I think proves that my mind still has to be transformed in this area. Uh, several of us were talking about how when we go to job interviews, we tend to turn on a Christian radio station on our way. Like, we don't always listen to Christian radio station, but if a job interview is on the line, then it's time to turn on the Christian radio station. And while we would have never said this, the truth is we recognize that I think that if I do something good, then God's going to have to bless me. If I, do, if I listen to the right music at the right time, then God's going to give me the right job because I've earned it. I've done something that's going to spur God in to doing something good for me. I want to suggest that that is the same thing that David is saying we can't do. It's the same thing that Martin Luther said we can't do. We can't do anything to obligate God to forgive us or to give us anything. All we can do is beg. Now, I don't mean to suggest that I shouldn't listen to Christian radio stations. But what I do suggest is that I can't listen to Christian radio stations to buy God's forgiveness. I can listen to them to respond to God's forgiveness. I can listen to a Christian radio station because I'm so excited about what God's done for me that I want to hear somebody else talk about what God's done for me. I'm so excited that God's forgiven me that I want to hear a song about how God's forgiven me. Well, then that is worship. And that's a response that God loves. It's a fragrant offering. But if I offer it to buy his forgiveness, it's detestable and offensive. When we began this time, I told you that there are kind of two kinds of people. People are going to listen to this message of David, and some of us are going to think, I'm just like David. I'm so much like David that I know that I've sinned. I know that my sin is weighty and it deserves a death penalty. It is separated from me from God. If that is you, I hope that you have found this passage to be so encouraging because now you know how you can be freed from that. You can ask God, you can confess your sins to God. You can say, God, I know that I am wicked. I know that I deserve death. And I beg you to take that away from me and to restore joy. And God says that he's excited to do it. He'll remove your sin as far as the east is from the west. No better news in the entire world. Uh, In a little bit, we're going to have a time of invitation. If you're someone who wants to have your sins forgiven by confessing them, and begging God to forgive you, we'd love to talk to you about that. And so when the time of invitation comes, come up and we'll just walk you through what does it look like to confess my sins and to beg God to forgive me. Uh, Some of you have long since realized that you're a sinner and that you have no hope but the grace of God. And so what you need to do is think today is, how can I respond to God's infinite love and infinite grace in worship and in praise? What can I do to, as a token of my love and my appreciation for God to return to him thanksgiving? If that's your position today, again, we would love to talk to you and think through how can we thank God for what he's done with you and praise him for what he's done with you. A third group, I think, of people that may be here are people that aren't quite convinced they're like David. People that aren't quite sure that I deserve this death penalty. David actually did have someone killed. David actually committed adultery. You know, David, David actually raped somebody. Those are, I haven't done these things. I've told white lies, but I'm not, a, I'm not horrible. I'm better than a lot of people that even go to this church. 
You know, and so you think, I'm not David. I want to warn you just two things from the book of Matthew. The first is that God said, Jesus comes and says, if you want to enter the kingdom of heaven, then you need to be more righteous than the scribes and the Pharisees. And then he goes on to tell us what that looks like. How righteous do you have to be to get into heaven? And he lists six things. I'm not going to list them all for you, but for instance, he'll say, you've heard the Bible say, don't murder. But I tell you that if you are angry with your brother without cause, in your heart, you're guilty of murder. And you deserve that judgment. And he lists things to say, it's impossible to be good enough for you to enter the kingdom of heaven. If you want to, the last line of uh, chapter 5 of Matthew says, you have to be absolutely perfect. A couple chapters later in Matthew chapter 9, Jesus is hanging out with sinners and tax collectors. And these same scribes and Pharisees come up to Jesus and they are angry with him. And they say, why are you hanging out with sinners and tax collectors? And Jesus says, I did not come for the healthy. I came for the sick. I did not come for the righteous, but for the unrighteous. The same thing is true of us today. That if you think that you're healthy, that you're not sick, then Jesus has said, then I didn't come for you. The reason I came here is for the people who need me and who want me and who are begging for me to intervene in their lives. If you walk away today or for the rest of your life and say, I'm not David, I don't need Jesus, then the, what you're saying is that I'm going to do this on my own. I'm going to stand before God on the basis of my own good deeds. And I'm telling you that that is a scary position to take. Because the alternate position is to say, now I want to stand in front of God, not on the basis of my goodness, but on the basis of the goodness of Jesus Christ. So let us talk to you about that and try to help you see how there is infinite freedom and infinite forgiveness in the person of Jesus Christ. I'm going to pray for us, and then uh, there will be a little bit of music, and we'll stand up front. You can talk to me or Justin. Thank you. Dear Lord, thank you for your amazing message of forgiveness that you offer us. If we will only confess our sins and beg you to forgive us, that you have no greater joy than offering us eternal life in heaven with you. Uh, We love you for this, and we ask that we'll know how to rightly respond by giving you praise and thanksgiving. In your name I pray, amen.